Hi, Mates of the Podcast fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson, and my guest today is Rochelle Udell. How do I pronounce your surname? Oh, I'm so bad at this. Oh, that's uh, okay. Udell. It's it's not a real it's not a real common one. So okay. Rochelle is a author for Mage the Ascension. Most recently, she was one of the authors for the Mage Cookbook. But reaching back into her eyes, she is also responsible for the lovely tomes that are The Bitter Road and The Fallen Tower Las Vegas. Uh, in addition to that, she was responsible for the write-up for the Ali Batine in M20. Rochelle, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. So how did you get involved writing RPG game supplements? <laughs> okay, so it started with a brunch. <laughs> and so I was singing with an opera company here um, locally in town, and the stage manager and I uh, started dating for a while. And he and his friends had a regular Sunday brunch at their house. And that is how I met Phil Brucato and his his partner at the time. And we all just kind of hit it off and, and became great friends, even after, you know, the, the relationship that I had been in kind of ended amicably. But we all became really, really great friends. And Phil mentioned that he was a writer. And I was like, oh, yeah, my undergraduate degree was in writing and in creative writing. And he was like, oh, really? Well, send me something that you've, that you've written. And, you know, just on a lark. And I did. And all of a sudden he was like, so, you know, do you? <laughs> play role-playing games i'm like yes i love role-playing games i used to play ga different kinds of games in school and and he was like have you ever played you know world of darkness and i'm like no what's that <laughs> nerd <laughs> i know right so um i started playing uh, a couple of these games and thought hey this is really quite amazing this is this is a better system than i've ever encountered before and um, I started reading some of the mage stuff and then Phil just kind of roped me in to writing a few, a couple things for him here and there. And that was it. Kept collaborating on stuff. And when you start writing, does it default to uh, fiction versus setting versus mechanics? Do you wind up doing all of them? Do you have a preference for one? I think I started with um, small bits of fiction and then it progressed to game setting. I've done... I've done bits of game mechanics. Actually, I was I was one of the co-authors on the recent Chicago Chronicles book that was released by Onyx Path for Vampire. Oh, neat. And that was one of the first books that I've ever worked on where I actually had to do hard game mechanics. And, you know, I was like, no, no, I don't know about this. This is not my usual wheelhouse, but it was fun and a learning experience. And I would certainly do that again. But uh, yeah, mainly it was, it started off as fiction and then it just kind of developed into other areas. You had mentioned before the interview that you had a background in opera. Please tell me that Phil Bricado is secretly an operatic comic tenor and uh, that would please me to no end. <laughs> Or like a comic baritone or something. and like, I don't know. He's, he could be. He knows the entire score for the HMS Pinafore. Exactly. Um, so was was The Bitter Road then the first mage text that you did? Oh, no. Gosh, I'm trying to think of what all I worked on. There were a couple snippets of things here and there. But I think in terms of major, you know, like being a major contributor to a book... Bitter Road was really kind of one of the one of the first ones that 
you know, I felt like I made a major contribution to. I also, one of the things I didn't mention was um, I also co-wrote Revelations of the Dark Mother with with Phil, which if you go to Drive Through RPG, it lists Rachel Dolium as the co-author, which she's a character in the book. <laughs> so I'm like, great. <laughs> you know, thanks, Drive Through RPG. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that would be like having a book listed by Porthos Fitz Empress. So we exactly. are, yeah, we we are a mage podcast. What is Revelations of the Dark Mother? And it looks like you did the Orphan Survival Guide too. Yes. Okay. Yes, so, I did. So Revelations of the Dark Mother was a, another thing, that, another offshoot that that Phil and I did for for the Vampire Line. It was a kind of you know their their whole thing is they they go on this nodist you know the va- the vampires all have this nodist mythology where Cain is you know of Cain and Abel is their great progenitor, and there's sort of a counterculture storyline that says well you know there there was also Lilith and Lilith was actually the vampire that came before Cain and that she's not actually a vampire at all she's something else and we don't quite know what she is but Revelations of the Dark Mother was a was kind of a an alternative mythology for you know, a more a more feminine based or feminist alternative mythology for players to work with in the vampire universe. So it kind of acts as a counterpoint then to the Book of Nod? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And I mean when you say it is feminist, it is not some sort of revisionist history. It is it is oh, on no. par. It is okay, this is one version of the events that the guys wrote. This is another version of the event that's has the same degree of truth to it. It's not like Exactly. So, it's not like someone's going back and rewriting it. Interesting. So did you ever get to play mage? Yes. Yes. I I played mage. I, I ran mage games. Um, One of the great laments of my life right now is that, um, you know, I went straight from a master's degree program into this PhD. And that means that I literally have zero free time to, to, you know, run a game or solicit folks in town to say, hey, I'd really love to run a mage game. As a matter of fact, one of the um, authors, uh, one of the co-authors on the uh, on the cookbook, Balogun Ochitade, he and his co-author Milton Davis have an awesome, awesome game called Kikanga, which is a, a sword and soul role-playing game that is based that is based in African magic and mythology and it's so cool and i've been dying to play this game and just have no time i've been dying to run a mage game with the new m20 system and have no time so yeah i i play and i write so sometime after we start calling you dr rochelle we may suddenly see chronicle materials start appearing oh, absolutely <laughs> so- absolutely Mage fan eighty two out of out of Georgia is suddenly going to pop up on all the forums and be like, "Hey, folks, I'm looking for players." Um, yeah, so that exactly. that'll be the secret hand tip. Uh, exactly. So among those projects, the Ali Batin in M twenty M twenty had a big push towards bringing the Disparates back as oh, yeah. as a legitimate group that you could play. I always got the sense in previous editions where it's like, "This is the spice. It's like pepper. Don't add too much, or your players will have problems with it, or something like that." <laughs> and then. In Revised, it was like, here's how to run an entire chronicle full of these people. And then in M20, it's like, they didn't disappear, and guess what? They're not all from Iran. 
So right. can, can you give us a little background on the, uh, the sect as a group or the, um, or the faction and, and where, what, what is different about the M20 presentation versus maybe how it was done in previous editions? Well, I first started writing about them on, under the old, you know, under the old system. But again, as you said, it was more like, Ooh, are, are these guys still around or have they really gone off and you know were they really destroyed what happened to them and so it was kind of it was sort of a teaser as you know we when we when we incorporated them into materials before m20 it was like maybe all the stories that you've been hearing about their demise are vastly you know exaggerated and that these people still do exist and and they are still operating relatively within the middle east and then with mage 20 phil and i sat down and had a long conversation i think i remember this conversation being like about two hours and we had a long conversation about what we wanted to do with the disparates and you know i'm like i i really want to highlight them not just as the oh well these are the leftover people who weren't good enough to be in a tradition and like no these folks represent magical traditions of their own that you know were marginalized for a variety of reasons and you know let's celebrate them let's let's celebrate these people that you know really don't care <laughs> about the traditions they've just been doing their own thing and and following their own their own agendas and you know fighting their own battles or or preserving their own culture in the case of you know some of these groups it really has been about preserving culture and and making sure that all of the things that were lost due to you know colonization and the the various magical wars that have gone on that that's that that can be preserved that that's not gone that they can pass that down to other generations one of the themes that seems to come through in M20 is the idea of engagement, that in previous editions, there was kind of this exoticism where players could right. stumble through the jungle and encounter this group of strange mages uh, that are yeah. slightly different. And that seems to very much go away in M20. So the, the Ali Batin departed from the Council of the Nine Mystic Tra Traditions in 1922, uh, five years after Sykes-Picot is signed, uh, right. ostensibly to maintain the web of faith. What What is their, to you as a storyteller and to you as an author, what does their return look like? And what does it look like now that they're not strictly greater Persian mages? Like what would an Appalachian Batin look like? And is it still heavily tied to Islam? No. And, and that's the cool thing is that it's not, you know, it, it retains, you know, in, in my vision of things, the Batin are no longer, you know, really tied to the Islamic faith. They're no longer tied to the Persian region. It's more of a way of thinking about how to manipulate the fabric of the world. And, and that's more universal than, you know, any any kind of religious doctrine that might exist. And the the tagline that we have in, in the text there is being everywhere yet nowhere is the key to hiding in plain sight. And so if you ask me what the Batini in Appalachia look like, well, they look like everybody else. <laughs> they look like your Appalachian mountain family or, or you know, 
mountain clan that that you know still still practices some of the things that are that are chronicled in the firefox books you know and you know they do woodworking and and they you know they turn butter and they do you know they do all these folk crafts you know or they're you know they're just average folks and yet that's what makes them so effective because nobody's going to notice the guy in overalls in the pickup truck who very subtly gives a nudge to somebody who otherwise wouldn't have taken a step in in, in a certain direction so their whole thing is you know they're they were often called the subtle ones and I, I was like well what does that really mean overt magic yes yeah, it's fun and it's flashy but covert magic takes a lot more time and a lot more thought and a lot more discipline I think because you know you spend five years in a place just to wait for a person just to wait for you know the lines of correspondence to to converge in such a way that you can literally just put your just nudge your finger on those lines just a little bit to change things the way you need to change them and that's like five years of your life Hmm. (laughs) But that's what you do. That's what you that's what you watch for. That's what you live for. And in the meantime, you're watchful, you're vigilant, you're waiting, you're you're looking at the big picture while you're waiting for the, the things on the micro level to kind of converge. It always felt culturally that there were a couple lines that converged for the Bettini. One was the idea that recurring throughout their history is they are I can't quite say necessarily hunted, but at least pursued. Their founding mm-hmm. mythology is two groups uh, in a mountain valley have a brief moment of unity where space, where it, it's kind of interesting in the, in, in the write-up, it's provided, a, written as almost an ecstatic moment, but it's so much more than that. It is a brief moment mm-hmm. of unity where both people are united as well as space and time. It's, yes. it, it is, mo- <laughs> it, it is more than taking like a whole bunch of Molly. Um, it, it is like as if the Tellurian did as well. And then they have their enemies. They, around the first century CE, I think, they're the first ones to really see the rise of the Nefandi. And the Nefandi are like, Mm-mm, don't like these guys. So they become hunted by them. Yep. And then you have the rise of Islam. So Islam is a minority religion for several centuries and they're hunted then. And then you have the advent of the technocracy resurgent in the early 20th century. And they're like, BRB need to maintain the web of faith. So right. it, do you feel that the Bettini are more connected by this notion of subtlety or the motion, the notion of, of pursuit. Like are the, are the Bettini a group of the downtrodden or the pursued? I don't think that they would see themselves as that way. I, I think that they would see themselves more as yes, we're, we're all connected to one another. We're ephemeral. Yes. There are people that are constantly out to get us. Yes. We're constantly battling the Nefandi. But it's more of a within our group, we are always connected to one another, no matter how far flung we are. So, you know, the, these concepts of, of space and time and pursuit and and stability just kind of have no real meaning for them, at least in, in my thought thoughts about the, the Aliva team, because their whole goal is we, we need to achieve that oneness again. And we can't achieve that oneness while we have nefandic forces out here in the universe that are trying to just literally consume and destroy everything. 
but they don't have access to the sphere of entropy. How do they detect that taint? That always bothered me. That's it's it's one of my two nits to pick. The other one is the fact that they are listed as dervishes, despite the fact that to me a dervish is always a member of the 12th century Sufi sect, and right. like and it's 1700 years early. Um, yeah, but, uh, uh, they're they're eh. not. They're, you know, I I think that was again that was that was a product of what I like to call the bra- the battle days where people were like, ooh, this would be cool, yeah. and and it was not necessarily it was well meant, but it wasn't as sensitive as it could have been. Bunch of kids in a college library. Uh, yeah, <laughs> basically. But I think to answer your entropy question, I I feel like there are other ways to sense the wrongness that is the the Nefandi. Um, I feel like there are other ways and other other avenues that the Batini have available to them. But how do you tell if it's a good blood drench altar or a bad blood drench altar without entropy? That's all I'm saying. But... Well, you know, that, that's why you're friends with Verbena. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, hey, Sally, can you give a check on that? No, it's cool. Is this it's, yours? This is... <laughs> This is, is actually a, this is ironic. This is this is a hipster <laughs> altar. We're in, we're in that part of Georgia. Yeah. Um, <laughs> are there plans going forward to expand this new Ali Batine? Are there any books in process, or alternatively, if you were to write your own little book uh, on them, where would you want to see it go? What I'd love to do. I mean, Phil and I talked about a um, a disparate book. And because there, there were so many of the other groups, like, you know, the Bata'a, for example, the Kapaloi, who are largely based in the Pacific Islands and Hawaii, you know, there, there are, there were so many groups that what we had wanted to do with disparates is with a book on disparates is like, okay, while, while y'all are over there playing your little tradition games, we have discovered that we may not like each other. We're not, you know, we're not necessarily all friends, but we can be allies because there is a greater problem that we have to solve. And these guys over here are too busy screwing around and backbiting with each other to really pay attention to the, to the major problem. So we were, I think the path we wanted to take was to just more explore not only these groups in and of themselves, but also the, the interesting alliances that they're making within themselves as the, the kids that were kicked out of the cool kids club, you know, back, back in the days of the founding of the traditions, you know, what, what are they doing and how are they interacting with the technocratic union? And, and there are some, there are some alliances that may surprise, you know, that, that might surprise people. For example, the kind of unifying story that ran through the cookbook that, that was driven by a character who is, uh, you know, one of a, who's a Templar knight. <laughs> and uh, one of his best friends is, is a Japanese Bettini. <laughs> so it's kind of like, huh, how do those two groups work together? But they do, because now they have to. I, I want to see that in sitcom or rom-com form. <laughs> <laughs> He's a Knight Templar. She's. <laughs> um, I know, right? Yeah. Is brother Oliver Leon or Lion or? Lion. Lion. I have recently discovered that there are several people in Mage meta plot that are actual people. Like apparently Lilith was entirely based on Patty Smith. And, and Satteros is mystified that people aren't like, isn't that obvious? And we're like, what are you talking about? Are you on meth? And <laughs> are there any characters in the cookbook that are actual people just loosely disguised? I'm always fascinated to find that out. Well, I, I did 
base Brother Lion on a very, very dear friend of mine who I met in Japan and um, one of the first people I met when, when I got to Japan. And uh, he, he is Irish and he does love to cook. And his family is a, is a farming family. And I thought, you know, huh, how, how cool would it be to kind of base a character off of him at least a little bit? And then there's, you know, some of the characters that, that he encounters, you know, some of the people that he encounters as he, as he travels around and eats lovely and yummy food with people. Some of those people are, are definitely based on actual folks I know. Oh, interesting. So to finish up with the Batine, is there are there any plans for actually an expansion book? It seems like White Wolf has gotten somewhat glacial in their project approval pace. Is this something we could ever see where uh, we could see you or your, your nom de plume appear in the Storyteller Vault? Or is, does that also go in the maybe once I have a PhD at the end of my name category? Um, I, yeah, I, like right now, I don't know. I, I was supposed to work on some projects, uh, some upcoming projects or I was asked, you know, I was invited to work on some upcoming projects that are coming out soon. But just because of my school schedule, that that just became impossible. So um, I was sad to have to to have to let go of, of those things. But hopefully we'll hear more. I, I don't know. It's the last time I talked to Phil, Phil was like, well, yeah, that's on hold. And I don't know what decisions the company is going to make going forward. But, you know, we'll see. It's the Swedes' fault. They're holding us up. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Transitioning to the Mage Cookbook, this was an utter delight. I I heard about there being a Mage Cookbook, and I thought it was just going to be a book of puns or like a church cookbook or maybe (laughs) maybe like five in-world recipes. And this thing, this thing is 150 pages of actual effing recipes, like intertwined with this is like the weirdest thing, this is the currently the most advanced thing in the Mage meta plot. Like, this is the only update to the base story that we've gotten past <laughs> M20. And I'm like, yes, tell me the story about this slightly revised world where things are slightly different and, and we embrace diversity more so than we did in the 90s. And I was just eating it up. <laughs> oh, good. I have a short list of recipen- uh, recipes, of recommended recipes that I'm going to that I'm going to go through and if any of the listeners have had any and would like to submit a picture of something they've made or or commentary on one of the recipes by all means do but it it is a it, <laughs> I didn't think a recipe book for Mage of the Ascension would wind up being one of the books where I say no 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 these people know what they're doing what's it like doing a cookbook versus literally any other supplement um this was one of the hardest things I think I've ever had to write largely because I can write a cookbook and I can write fiction but I had never, when when Phil approached me with this and said, hey, would you like to write this? I'm like, okay. <laughs> and, you know, I wasn't quite sure how how to marry those two things because I, I had looked, I had looked at the werewolf cookbook and seen kind of what the format was. And I'm like, okay, I, I sort of get what's happening here with the genre. But it just wasn't happening for me. I just could not wrap my head around this concept. And then Victor, 
out of the blue, just kind of told me this, this amazing story. He was like, I have an idea and I don't know if, if you'll like it or not, but let me tell you this idea. I'm like, sure, please. How bad can it be? I, I'm, I'm lost. <laughs> and he sent me this magnificent idea, this magnificent kind of story idea. And I'm like, that's it. Oh my gosh, I totally know where I'm going with this book now. <laughs> and once I kind of realized what the what the frame story was going to be, then it was easier to kind of come up with the, a set of recipes that I wanted to that I wanted to present and just things that either I had always wanted to research this and figure out how to make it and see how it tastes <laughs> or Things that, you know, things that had been in my recipe books for years that I'd always wanted to share with people, things that others had shared with me. So that's kind of how it came to pass. And I I will definitely say, you know, there there's a reason why I wanted Victor to be, you know, listed as a co-author on this book, because he was absolutely essential to many of the many of the cooler elements of of this book, um, I have him to thank for the um, the technocratic food stuff, or mm-hmm. for for most of it. That that was just inspired, and I really loved, you know, working with that. And Phil and I liked developing that into into the book. The statistically inevitable corned beef sandwich. Yes, uh, which is one of the most brilliant things. <laughs> I love it. I, I was really hoping the iteration X sen- uh, section was just going to be like a bottle of Ensure or some <laughs> other nutrition supplement <laughs> that just keeps you alive and does nothing else. And then it's like, it's a cashew curry with aquafaba. I'm like, fascinating. So yes. that's how you keep a cyborg going. Good to know. So are the are the cocktails your baby? Because this is the only... the. Th- th- my love of the cocktail section is it's the only time where a lot of very serious concept and mage, except for maybe in the intro pages of something are kind of treated in any self-effacing way. The fact that you have drinks like the code monkey or the choir girl and my personal favorite, the little good death. Um, it's, it's, it's the only place where we're, we're allowed to be, uh, we're, we're allowed to make the jokes we probably make around the table, but in print. So exactly. Is, is that exactly. your work? Please say yes. And that can... that is uh, alas, I wish it were, but that but that was that is not, and largely that's because I I don't really drink. <laughs> I, I think I used to once upon a time when when I was I was younger and my liver was younger. <laughs> um, but no, Phil, who was that? I'm looking at the table of contents now, actually. While you're uh, thinking of that, I would just like to read to the audience the cocktail known as... We'll, we'll do two contrasting ones. One is Porthos Revenge, um, <laughs> which is uh, silver rum, simple syrup, soda water, a jalapeno pepper, and three wedges of lime with a sprig of mint in a Tom's Collins glass. Perfectly serviceable, nice cocktail. Immediately above it is the orphan. Ingredients. Cold water. Add alcohol as desired. Drink alone. And you're like, whoa! <laughs> that, kind of, that kind of got to the heart of the matter. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I'm not quite sure who it was. Um, that was something that Phil pulled together, oh, I have to say, um, was, was the whole cocktail section, because he was like, hey, can you think up some drinks, some mixed drinks and stuff? And I'm like, I don't drink. But yeah, you. good luck with that. <laughs> You know, I, I will welcome anything that you bring into this process. I recall that when I was reading through like the final, you know, the final drafts and things, I, I have to say that, you know, I really enjoyed 
reading the descriptions and and the drink recipes because they they seem they seem really awesome. Like you mentioned the the little good death, which you've got death store gym and gin and then live probiotic kimchi brine. Yep. <laughs> like, dude, that is a crazy cocktail. I also like that the uh, Order of Hermes recipe for Beef Wellington is like 17 pages of instructions. <laughs> that about... is mine. That one is mine. I will claim that proudly. Oh, I have been wanting to... Beef Wellington is one of my absolute favorite dishes on the planet. And there was a time in my in my 20s when I kind of discovered... discovered um, Overly complicated British food? Uh, yeah, well, just complex culinary techniques. And uh, I, I remember the first time I made a Wellington, it was, it was the traditional, like the entire beef roast and you wrap it in pastry and all this other mm-hmm. stuff. And it was, you know, it was big and it was messy and it was complicated, but it turned out so well and it was really, really delicious. And I had seen at some point over the years, a recipe for individual Wellingtons. And I was like, ah, oh, that'd be cool to develop, you know, to see if what, how you could develop individual Wellingtons. Um, and if that, if there was an easier process, if you wanted to do something that was just over the top, just completely and utterly over the top for a special occasion, or even if it's just Tuesday, um, <laughs> you know, just there, there was a way that you could prep that and then just wow the wow the socks off somebody with your culinary skills and what is the framing narrative just for our listeners this is somewhat unique in that it's almost uh, epistolary in that it is this mixture of this frame merit narrative and the recipes that are picked up by this and and what had you pick a knight templar this is like the, <laughs> the, the uh, this is the it's weird just because the the world of darkness has had a messy relationship with re- religion over time. And yes. to me, it's this weird notion of progress where in first edition, almost all members of the celestial chorus are Christian. In second edition, it's anyone who is a monotheistic faith. In revised, it broadens further to anyone who believes that there is a unifying entity and maybe that we are its descendants. And to like, for the over the top version, you had, okay, the the choristers is the militant Christians. And then you had the Knights Templar who are literally militant in the sense that they carry automatic weapons. And now we have a cookbook by one. So how do you get from point A to point B on that one? So when I was working with the the Knights was also one of the one of the things that I wrote up for Mage Twenty, oh, and when I was writing that section, I I became really fascinated and I, I wanted to I wanted to explore this idea of subverting what we usually think about when we think about these guys. I think that in in the nineties and in in the run up to Mage Twenty, there was a tendency to kind of paint all people, all all Christians in particular, with this sort of broad brush of, you know, oh, well, they're intolerant and, oh, well, they're misguided in their thinking. And, and I said, you know what, what if we turn that around that, yes, you know, Brother Lion is a Templar. He has been trained, you know, by like he's a member of, you know, of a military 
organization, which that's kind of the way they operate. And yet he's still this sensitive person. He is still a compassionate person. He is still an humble person who is willing to step outside of his dogma and step outside of maybe some of the, you know, some of the things that he has been taught during his training to embrace other people and to, and to find allies. And, you know, when I was writing this, this is, I had written this story for the anthology of Mage 20 Fiction. And um, in that, in the story that I wrote, he was searching for a fellow brother or a group of brothers that had gone missing. And he had employed the help of, you know, this Batini woman who had later become his best friend. But I used him as a character because I said, what would happen to someone who had had an ex- just a life altering experience with the Nefandi like that? And how would that change his approach to working with other people in the magical universe? How would that a cha- How would that change his approach to the way he w- he looks at the world? And so that's that's kind of where that came from. Is that you know who who might be the most unlikely character to to be wandering the world and encountering all of these different kinds of magical people and and sitting down and eating dinner with them and, and collecting these recipes along with stories of the experiences that that he had and, and in particular there's there's one segment where the one that goes along with the with the recipe of mafongo where he hooks up with this with this chick and they you know they have a terrible encounter with uh, you know some some bad guys in an alleyway and you know that's it's just kind of like one of those things where yeah I'm on assignment but I'm also encountering people and eating good food and hey let me write this down what is a mafongo? Oh gosh. Oh, mafongo is is heavenly. That's <laughs> what it is. Well, the second ingredient is 1 pound of beef bones. That that's the start of any party in my house at least. <laughs> and and then later a pound of pork rinds. So that's oh, pretty yeah. great. Yeah, let me let me find my recipe for that cuz um there Gallantry. were um pork rinds, green plantains. Green plantains. Ooh, yeah, it's mainly bacon. based on plantains. Okay. So, um it, it's it's plantains and pork and sometimes shrimp and lots of different seasonings and it is made in a very particular way so in in the caribbean mafongo is usually made with a particular it's it's like a mortar and pestle only it's shaped kind of differently okay you you use that to to crush the the plantains and and everything together to kind of make this this wonderful paste and you mix everything up together with the seasonings and it's delicious. You know, you eat it with rice and noted. I think that's going on that's going on my short list. So the recurring theme of the groups that you've written for in M twenty appears to be people who hunt down or deal with the Nafandi. So yes. I feel like there there's a certain amount of typecasting there. Was there someone like who understands demons? Rochelle. And then <laughs> That <laughs> kind of went from there. Do you have any other commentary on the cookbook that you'd like to share? Any backstories that, of, of what went into it or any particular recipes you'd like to direct our readers towards? Okay, so there there were a couple of them that I have to say that unfortunately, and I and I hate that it's that it's a typo in the book, but um, one of the first recipes, the chicken nanban and miso nas, which should be spelled N-A-S-U, 
<laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the editor was thinking there. Mm. Um, but um, nas is um, eggplant. It's it's a it's a Japanese style eggplant. Although if you can't get the Japanese style eggplant, you can use Chinese eggplant. But um, chicken nandan was one of those things that I encountered when I was in southern Japan. Uh, that's a regional dish, and it's not like if you fly to Tokyo, you're not really going to be, you know, yeah, you'll get ramen, yeah, you'll get sushi, yeah, you'll get some other things, but you got to go to the south of Japan to get chicken nanban. And this dish is just nuts. <laughs> it's just nutso. When I first had it, I was like, what is this magical thing? But it's basically a, a chicken a chicken cutlet, chicken thighs. They they tend to eat the the darker meat because it has more flavor and more fat. But, you know, it's this, it's this chicken thigh cutlet that's lightly breaded and fried and it's got like this this uh, vinegar sauce and tartar sauce and it's served on um, freshly shredded cabbage and it is just when you think about it you're like what really mm-hmm. and then you eat it and you're like, this is just divine how have I been missing out on this and of course the miso nasu which is so simple and and delicious that it became my favorite thing to to eat while I was there and, and one of my favorite things to, to make. Let's see, one of, one of the other recipes though that I, that I do have to point people towards because it's, it's quite wonderful is the, um, I'm, I'm looking at the table of contents uh. right now on my computer. So it's kind of like, where did it go? The New England um, a lobster bisque is one of my absolute favorite recipes. It is a go-to recipe for cold winter day. Um, and I have friends that yearly are like, so you <laughs> make that bisque. And, and same thing with the meatballs. The, those were those were my, my grandmother's recipe. But the Battenberg cake that, okay. that's in the Sons of Ether section, that and the, the tea siphon, I encountered the tea siphon and I thought, what a fabulous contraption <laughs> that, you know, normally for me, tea is very simple. You know, you, you have the strainer and the leaves go in the strainer and you pour the water in, and you let it steep and there you go. You got tea. But the, just the idea of, of this tea siphon that, you know, is the most complicated, complex way you could possibly ever render flavor from tea leaves. And then I said, okay, so what's the most complicated cake I can think of <laughs> to go with this tea siphon? And and it was Battenberg cake. And it, it is one of my favorites because marzipan is the food of gods. And I look forward to Christmas every year so I can buy marzipan. <laughs> Pardon me. As in, you only allow yourself to buy marzipan once a year, or is it, yes, or is it season? Because, okay. <laughs> because otherwise, I, I I would just eat it incessantly year round, and that's it's, just not healthy. <laughs> almonds is a balanced food. It contains vitamin uh, almond. Not with all that sugar. <laughs> yeah. Not with all that sugar. Something that I wish we we had been able to include more of, and and I'm I'm hopeful that as I encounter more. Native American and First Nations writers that maybe, you know, if we ever do do another iteration of this kind of a book that I can include more things. But the recipes that were Native American were the result of some research on my part 
and just kind of going out to the Native American community and saying, hey, what's a recipe that I can include? Because I don't want to leave you out of this book. And I think that it's important that we, I don't know, pay attention to the culinary arts that's co- that are coming out of the Native American communities, because there's some really, really cool stuff happening right now you know modern day you know relearning how to forage relearning how to eat from the land and respect you know respect the land that you get your food and your sustenance from so i was super hoping we'd have something from north of the arctic circle where it's like find seal kill seal eat seal why are you complicating things And, and I fully understand the complexity of the Battenberg cake. I am a, a hobbyist baker. I've brought something in to work every Monday for 11 years. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And one snow day, I decided to use the tartine recipe, the bakery in San Francisco, their recipe for croissants. And it took me three days. Oh, of course it did. Uh, the sheer number of like resting intervals where it's like, let let the dough recover. It's been through something traumatic. Read it something nice. And you're like, this is a bit twee. And when I when I finally baked them, I was so fed up with them that when it was done, I ate it. And it, it was the best, it was the best croissant I had ever had. Exactly. I was really hoping it would have been a dumpster fire and it could have been like, screw you, Pillsbury from here on out. Grands, it is not worth this shit. And like every once in a while, I'll be like, I should show people I love them. I should make a croissant. And then just the rage rises in me and it never never quite happens. So, so my, my father passed away in, um, in 2014 and from the time I could really, I could really be trusted by myself in the kitchen for Christmas, mom and I had made these cookies called butterhorn cookies. And they were essentially, you know, kind of a croissant dough with a meringue inside and then they were dusted with uh, powdered sugar which you know they're just the most delicious thing ever it got to a point where uh, you know when i when i got older and i and i left the house and i would come home for christmas that would be my christmas present to my father would be to make these cookies and these things take like they take all night. <laughs> like if you, if they, they take all afternoon to make because, you know, the same kinds of things, you know, you have to roll out the dough and you have to incorporate the butter into the dough and you have to let it rest and you have to, you know, do there, there's just so much going on. And I used to call those love cookies because <laughs> you don't bake these cookies for people that you, uh, you, the only people you bake these cookies for are people whom you love. <laughs> And, and I would say that, that 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 croissant is a love croissant. You, you only make that for people you really love. I, I have a certain number of hate recipes where I'm like, where I'm a big fan of the best revenge is living well. And the idea to be like, I have so much spare personal capacity that I will make for you this person, person I loathe, this cake that is made of my lifeblood people are like oh that's so diplomatic i'm like no it's the opposite no, it's the opposite it's... <laughs> the best revenge is living well be nice to your enemies it confuses them indeed so my work nemesis i made him a a three-layer cheesecake and a different one i made a ice cream cake for Ooh. her and like the office was clearly divided for the people like oh my god terry must love this person and people were like 
mm, bitch doesn't know what she got coming. Like, so, no. <laughs> so I have a, I have a fundamentally different relationship with my cooking. Also, my family hates my cooking regardless. Mm-hmm. Like I, I <laughs> it's just, uh, we're Irish. We don't like anything the other person does up to and including like attempting to love us and such is the way of things. Indeed. Um, oh, and, and one final thing that I will say, because, you know, I, I know that, that sometimes for folks who don't, who don't follow the goings on on Twitter every year in the United States around Thanksgiving time, there is the great collard greens debate. Go on. (laughs) There, there is the great collard greens debate. Like what is the definitive recipe for collard greens? And the crux of the debate usually falls under, do you put sugar in collard greens or not? Mm. The answer is no. Um, but one of the things that I thought that I would do with this book, um, because Neiman Marcus, you know, the, the department <laughs> store, the, yes. the Shishi department store, every year they sell out of their, their pre-cooked collard greens. And these collard greens are like the most struggle bus collard greens you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> I'm like, what, what is, th- what is this? What, what happened? <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I decided to do the world a favor and, and include my mother's recipe for collard greens in the book. So if you want, if you want to make some really good collard greens, then yeah, that's, that's the recipe for you. The, the, the trick is you gotta let them cook. It's not like spinach. It doesn't just wilt. <laughs> you, know, you, you gotta actually cook your greens. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the, the collard greens as of 2016 are $66 for the frozen ones plus $15 mm-hmm. and 50 cents shipping. And the tweet I see associated with it is a statement of, I'll just say this, if you buy collard greens from Neiman Marcus, you will not get into heaven. No, so that's, you won't. That's good to you, know. You will not. Do, do yourself a favor, save yourself 60 some odd dollars and, and use this recipe. Make my mama's collard greens because they're delicious. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you've passed that bit of enlightened wisdom to the to the, <laughs> to the rest of us. Do you, do you have any... Uh, mage projects in in the pipeline or do you plan on doing anything in the near future or alternatively are there any other projects you'd like to make our listenership aware of i'm not really working on anything at the moment you know there there's some things that i have knocking around in my head that you know might end up on you know in the storyteller's vault at some point in time mainly right now i'm i'm working on a, a novel that is completely outside of, of the mage universe. So then I've been spending more time with that lately than, than with the, you know, the mage stuff. But that said, um, I'm always up for, for writing new things, whatever, whatever new thing comes down the pipeline, whatever they decide to start a Kickstarter over. And <laughs> I'm like, huh, that's, that's kind of cool. I'll go with that. But yeah, I really would like to have the, I really would like to have a chance to do that Disparates book that we talked about because that that's that would be kind of cool, I think. It would be nice to see a few little two two to five dollar storyteller vault supplements start popping up and maybe then be available as a 
a, a compendium at some at some later point. But until that happens, we will wait with bated breath for you to finish <laughs> your doctorate so we can Yay. see Dr. Rochelle in the front of all of our books. I hope at least for the first one, you do include the doctor in there. I feel like that's oh that's oh, oh please. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm I'm gonna be like like um, Doctor Nady Okafor. You know, it's like I I I, I earned that doctorate. I'm gonna uh-huh. use doctor in front of my name. <laughs> Uh huh. So, um, so yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. To our listeners, if you have any thoughts, any comments, if you've baked anything as part of the Mage Cookbook, by all means, tell us how it went. Uh, listen to us on Spotify or Anchor.fm. Visit us at magethepodcast.com. Email us at magethepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at, at magethepodcast on Twitter. 